Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll get a bipartisan view of a big week in Washington from two veteran Capitol Hill staffers, Bill Hoagland senior vice president of the Bipartisan Policy Center, and Joe Minerick, senior vice president and director of research at the Committee for Economic Development. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman, who is herself a veteran of many legislative battles, joins our conversation. Well, if you like to follow the federal budget, this week has it all. A potential government shutdown, a debt limit standoff, a bipartisan physical infrastructure bill, a partisan reconciliation bill uh, that would greatly expand social spending and raise taxes to pay for it. So if this isn't quite the budgetary Super Bowl, uh, we're certainly in the playoffs. And our guests today have been through many such Capitol Hill playoff rounds. Uh, Today, we'll get their thoughts on this one. Bill Hoagland has 33 years of federal government service, including 25 years on the U.S. Senate staff. He uh, was the staff director at one time on the Senate Budget Committee. He was appropriations advisor to the Senate Majority Leader. Uh, Bill uh, is a Republican. On the Democratic side, we have Joe Minerick, who is chief economist at the Office of Management and Budget for eight years of the Clinton administration. Uh, Joe also worked uh, on Capitol Hill uh, as chief economist to the House Budget Committee and staff director of the Joint Economic Committee. Uh, There's a lot more I could tell you about the background of both of these guys, except uh, that uh, I want to get straight to their analysis. So let's go there. Bill and Joe, welcome back to Facing the Future. Good to be back. Good to be here. Well, there's certainly a lot at play this week uh, in Congress. It's all subject to rapid change. So instead of guessing about what's going to happen, uh, and of course you can do that if uh, you'd like to risk your predictive powers, but I thought we should focus on what's at stake and what the procedural options are for getting something done. Uh, And I want to begin with appropriations because, uh, you know, there's a lot of maneuvering taking place, but there is one, one thing that is certain and that's that if Congress doesn't pass a funding bill for, for federal agencies by the end of the day on Thursday, the 30th of September, uh, much of the government will have to shut down until funding is passed. So let's first talk about that shutdown issue. Bill, you were uh, the appropriations advisor to a prior Senate majority leader. What's the state of play as, as you see it right now on, on, on appropriations? Well, I think the the appropriations, I think the House has passed, I think, seven of its appropriation bills. The Senate has passed nothing uh, in appropriations, and the fiscal year, of course, begins in, here at the end of the week. Uh, so um, the state of the play right now is that uh, everything is up in the air. Uh, I think there will be a continuing resolution uh, that will be eventually adopted here. 
and that it will carry us into probably into uh, December. And uh, uh, between now and then, I would hope that uh, appropriations, the regular appropriation bills will move forward. Um, uh, we have moved from the individual bills uh, to packaging them in, in many packages. And I think, uh, uh, I think that's an that's a evolution that's taken place with the process on the Hill that may in the future help us. But listen, we have a, a, a majority that's uh, Democrats that control House and Senate and the White House. And still we are unable to get our appropriation bills done on time, which just simply points out the extreme difficulties we have in a very polarized uh, uh, atmosphere today uh, to achieve uh, uh, doing the basic work that the federal government has to do, which is to pass bills to keep the government operational. Um, I, I will also say that uh, shot out. Here, I'm going to take the position that um, uh, may or may not be popular with uh, some, but that is that I do think it's time to rethink the whole budget appropriation process and to move to a biennial appropriation process. Uh, or, or, or some form of an automatic CR. So that once we get up to this point, we have a past appropriations that automatically we keep government running at the current level without having to go through this uh, uh, game of chicken that we seem to have fallen into here recently. Joe, I'd be interested in your take on that. And also as a former executive department uh, uh, official from uh, at, at your days at OMB, what, what exactly happens in a shutdown? I think there's a lot of confusion about that. Uh, well, we uh, have a lot of strange conversations. Uh, <laughs> you, have to, you have to build your way up to, uh, the, uh, uh, to the shutdown with uh, communications with the agencies to let them know what they can do, what they can't do. Uh, the rules have changed since I was there. The rules now are less rigorous than they were. They're, a, a shutdown send, today sends fewer people home than it did when I was in, in the business. Um, but uh, that is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's less painful. On the other hand, uh, because it is less painful, you're more likely to incur some pain because people decide that, well, if the government doesn't shut down, what's the big deal, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we used to talk about uh, you can't get a passport, you can't, uh, you know, government contractors don't get paid, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I suspect that we would need to use a, a finer uh brush to find all of the uh, real points of dislocation these days. So, um, but it's, it's, it's not the way we should do business uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, we'll, we'll go on and talk more about the situation, but what frustrates me is, uh, you know, if, if you want government to deliver for people, uh, this is, this is no way to do it. Uh, because you can't do the job that you're supposed to do without some uh, certainty about funding and uh, the ability to plan, the ability to reform, the ability to have oversight. And, uh, you know, this is, this is not an attractive world for, for me. 
Um, quick question to, to Joe and Bill. The, the, the questions that I always get in public forums about government shutdown are, do Medicare benefits get paid? Do Social Security benefits get paid? Do our soldiers get paid? And can the IRS still collect revenues? Do, do we know of the status of those four things in a shutdown or does it always change? In my experience, and I'll, I'll let Bill uh, come back and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, because the Social Security check is a mandatory expenditure, there is an obligation to get it paid. So the uh, discretionary, the appropriated spending to pay the check uh, is, uh, is required by law. Uh, the troops uh, get into the category of uh, life, uh, safety, and property. Uh, the troops get paid, in my memory. Uh, the uh, let's see, what else did you ask about? Uh, IR, IRS and, and yeah. Medicare, I assume, falls under the same category as Social Security. Medicare falls under the same category as Social Security. Uh, the IRS. Um, the one thing that if, if there's anybody out there who says, hey, the government shut down, I don't have to send the check that I'm owed, that I owe with the deadline, uh, the deadline's still there. So there may not be anybody to uh, reprimand you immediately, but uh, by the time, you know, if your check is late, you're going to be penalized. So um, I don't think that affects it. The other question is, are people going to get their tax refunds? I haven't gotten my tax refund from last year anyway, so I'm still waiting. Uh, so, uh, so, so, I mean, the, the people talking about a, a so-called CR, a, a continuing resolution, almost as if that's the end. Uh, you know, we, we avoid a shutdown by having a CR, so we'll pass the CR. CRs can last for two days or two hours or two months or the whole fiscal year. So it's, it's really not a solution. Bill, a CR basically does what? Basically keeps the government funded at the current level that they're operating under in the previous fiscal year. Uh, it's, it's flatline, if you like, for all the programs. They continue to receive the funding on an annualized basis throughout that period of time. So it really doesn't, uh, in the near term, it really doesn't change things that much. Uh, it does create uh, frustration for plant, for programs and agencies that have plans for either increasing spending or new programs or whatever, uh, or, or if, the, if plans had been to reduce spending, it, it creates money that may not have been necessarily to continue. So it's just a, a status quo of where we are. Nothing changes in that regard. And to Tori's previous question, I agree with Joe. I think all four of those items will continue on. Uh, specifically, I have a sad situation where I have to go to a funeral at uh, Arlington Military Cemetery on Friday. And a question I asked was whether I, the, the National uh, Arlington Cemetery would be closed down with the military. The answer was no that will go forward. So I think, I think it's clear that, uh, uh, that the military will continue. It's basically the non-military civilians that work in the Department of Defense that are affected by um, a shutdown. Speaking of, of, of we, military ahead, and, and, yeah, sorry, speaking of military and defense, I know that the Defense Department, uh, Pentagon really hates to operate under a continuing resolution, correct? Do, do we know why? Well, there are a number of things. I'll I'll start, and Bill, I think we'll we'll 
be able to con uh, add to what I have to say, but uh, you know, one of the things that Bill suggested, uh, you know, a continuing resolution is like punching autopilot in the uh, in the cockpit. Uh, you know, current course and speed. Uh, there is an exercise going into the creation of a of a CR, and I probably should have said this in answer to Bob's question a moment ago. Um, called anomalies, you're looking for operations of departments where there's something extraordinary going on where current course and speed won't cut it. So for example, um, the, I, I would mention an aircraft carrier. You know, if you're going from one stage of construction to another, the federal government has a contractual obligation to pay uh, a, uh, uh, a contractor on time. And if you're going from stage one to stage two and the amount of activity is going up, that's an anomaly and there would be more money in the CR for uh, uh, that change in the uh, contractual obligation. You know? But the downside of the CR and a world in which you're doing CRs is um, you can't improve because your current course and speed, if, if uh, there is a change in operations that would be superior, uh, you can't do that. Uh, and uh, the Department of Defense, as like every other department, I think is probably highly frustrated about that. Uh, and uh, you know, a world in which you know, we'd go on with continuing resolutions for a long time and here, you know, I think I have a, a small difference with Bill, but I'm sure that it's it's quite narrow. Um, you know, if we went to a world of automatic CRs, I wonder if members of Congress would become so cynical that they would just decide that they can freeze the size of government by just refusing to pass appropriations bills. So as somebody who was more involved in this side of the business uh, in the executive branch than I was in the legislative branch, uh, I would be a little frustrated with giving people uh, on the Hill the option of uh, stopping progress in government uh, by refusing to pass appropriation bills. Just one, one person's opinion. I don't disagree uh, that that is a risk associated with a, a, a continuing automatic continuing resolutions. I think one of the uh, alternatives to just simply continuing resolution is after five days, 10 days, start to uh, reduce the amount that, of the continuing resolution to put pressure back on. Now, again, that could play the hands of some people who want to reduce spending as opposed, but to build the pressure as uh, Tori is suggesting earlier, build some pressure uh, that would create a, a desire to get something done. I have, uh, before we uh, wrap up with our appropriations and shutdown discussion, uh, have a couple of observations, and maybe you could react to it, but it, it does seem to me as a, an observer from the outside of this for the last 30 years, while you guys have all been working on the inside, that um, it seems that we're running against this shutdown deadline much more Frequently, I mean, there are just fewer and fewer appropriation bills ever get passed during the course of the year. And it, it just, it, 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 you know, I, I did look up the, the numbers uh, last night. I won't go through them, but it, it does confirm that uh, the number of appropriation bills that get passed before the end of the fiscal year is often zero. I mean, quite often zero. 
uh, more the norm than than um, uh, than the exception. And I just I wonder why that is. I mean, it, it, you know. It, I always think of, and I think we always think of appropriations bills as being, you know, bipartisan and you get negotiations between the committees and uh, you come out with a, a number and we're not, it doesn't seem to me that we're going through that process much anymore. And that's related to another observation, which is it seems to put an enormous amount of power with leadership uh, to almost determine what everything is. And it might be that if you were a regular rank and file member, it would be less, um, you, you would feel less impactful uh, if if all the appropriations were left to the end of the year and decided in, in leadership discussions. Yeah, I think that I have on more than one occasion heard an appropriator say, if you just left this process to us, to the appropriators, we can get it done. You know, they are very confident that they can work together. And I think the, the appropriators are more bipartisan than the Congress as a whole. Uh, but the problem is it's the Congress as a whole. It has to pass the bills. And, uh, uh, you, know, I, you know, Bill can speak, I think, better than I to the, the concentration of uh, power and decision-making and leadership. But uh, it does seem pretty clear that the fact that we are becoming so polarized and that uh, if you are not in power, uh, stopping things from happening is good for you, uh, even if that means shutting down the government to some people. It's, it says that the people in power aren't, um, uh, aren't making the trains run on time. And uh, you know, as uh, we know, uh, you can't appropriate money in a reconciliation bill, so you always need 60 votes in the Senate. And uh, so a determined minority in the Senate can keep appropriations from happening. And that's, uh, that's pretty much where we are, even if the appropriators could work it out among themselves with uh, much less difficulty. I agree with Joe. I think that uh, the important point here is that uh, appropriators, and I agree, Joe, appropriators have told me many times, just leave it to us. We can fix, we can, we can get it done. In fact, I think they are. They're very efficient in terms of their, we have to, re I think we remind your, your listeners, Bob and Tori, that uh, uh, keep in mind that we're only talking about basically one third of all federal spending and all those things <laughs> That's that, right. uh, that are, the real focus should be on that other two thirds. Uh, uh, going forward. But uh, uh, I, I think that uh, uh, one thing we also have to remember, I don't remember my statistics, Bob, you, that you looked up, but I think the last time we passed all, back then, I think it was 13 appropriation bills, now 12, I think it was 1996 or pretty close to that after we'd had a- Bingo, you got, I've, I've got 90, 97 and I don't know whether that was okay. probably in 96. It was probably in 96 for fiscal year 97. So. And remember that came after a very uh, contentious period of government shutdowns and uh, Gingrich and uh, contract with America and a standoff that led, eventually led to- uh, a balanced budget agreement in 1997. So once we've got that, it was a very simple, straightforward to pass all appropriation bills. We had an agreement. Uh, so I, I think the other point I would want to make is what really screws up appropriations has nothing to do with appropriations. It has to do with those extraneous provisions, issues associated with the social 
issues of whether it be abortion or maybe a, a something of those nature. Those are the kinds of issues that usually screw up uh, appropriation bills having nothing to do with the actual spending. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Bill Hoagland of the Bipartisan Policy Center and Joe Minerick of the Committee for Economic Development about government shutdowns, the debt limit, President Biden's legislative agenda, and lots more other things. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Bill Hoagland of the Bipartisan Policy Center and Joe Minerick of the Committee for Economic Development. We're discussing government shutdowns, the debt limit, President Biden's legislative agenda, and anything else Bill and Joe would like to talk about. Uh, all right, we're going we're gonna to turn now to reconciliation, which is a special budget process to try to get things through the Senate without having to uh, be held up by a filibuster. And one of the major things that's going on in Washington this week is the Democrats attempt to get a first iteration of their major reconciliation bill, which is made up of a lot of the social agenda items that uh, President Biden wants to accomplish. Uh, and uh, so the House is perhaps going to vote on that this week. We'll, we'll see. Um, Tori, I'm going to let you uh, pick up the questioning here because you've had a lot of experience dealing with reconciliation bills uh, from your experience in the in the House and Senate. So um, uh, I'll defer to you here. I guess the, the first question uh, I'll ask, and, and Bill, I'll go to you as a, a former Senate staffer. You know this well. Um, what's What's so neat and exciting about reconciliation and why is it also a problem. <laughs> well, first of all, I think in the history of the Budget Act, which has been about 50 years now, there have been 22 reconciliation bills. And historically, the founders of the uh, Congressional of the of the Congressional Budget Empowerment Control Act, when they put this into place, there was uh, we used to have two budget resolutions. We have one in the spring and then one in the fall. And the one in the fall was to reconcile with the instructions that were in place. And we eventually did away with the second. And that's where the word reconciliation comes from. But importantly, why it was important was in those days the real focus was on deficit reduction. Uh, fiscal restraint, fiscal sustainability. And even though we were only talking about deficits of $70 billion back in 1980, <laughs> uh, we are now, uh, the purpose of the Budget Act in many ways with reconciliation was to focus on making changes in those programs that had direct spending authority, Think big, the big ticket items, the two thirds of the budget, so to speak. Uh, and uh, that was the strength of this because they were of the ability to put together uh, a, a package that would really deal with under expedited procedures uh, uh, the fiscal outlook by either increasing revenues or reducing spending. Uh, it's, the problem has become back back and maybe I'm maybe Joe would say I'm partly responsible for this back in, we were very, very successful, overly successful, let's say 1997, uh, under negotiated bipartisan agreements where we resulted in, and not entirely because of it, but we resulted in a, uh, a budget agreement that actually uh, the next few years created a surplus. 
And so when the Bush administration came in in 2001, um, and by the way, that surplus was being projected by both the Congressional Budget Office, the outgoing Clinton administration, the wannabe incoming Gore administration, the Alan Greenspan uh, Federal Reserve, uh, surpluses as far as the eye could see. And so the incoming Bush administration in 2001 said, uh, uh, let's use this process called reconciliation to reduce taxes, not increase taxes, but reduce taxes. And the purpose of that was not to create a deficit, but to bring that surplus, which hard to believe can be as damaging to an economy as can be deficits. And that kind of opened up the floodgates then later on, um, which said, well, if you can use reconciliation to cut taxes, then certainly you could use reconciliation to increase spending. And I think that's where we went off the rails. And today uh, we're using this for a very partisan uh, approach uh, to various, uh, whether it was the Trump administration in 2017 using reconciliation to cut taxes in the midst of projected deficits, or, and I'm not terribly critical, but I will say to increase spendings under the American Rescue Plan in the Biden administration earlier this year to add $1.8 trillion in spending, which maybe was necessary, uh, but, uh, to, but to avoid the avoid the having to face a, a possible 60 vote filibuster in the Senate. So it's a, the process has changed dramatically over the 50 years in which it was originally envisioned for what it was designed to do. Joe, question for you, uh, as someone who's worked in the executive branch, uh, when we use reconciliation, there are obviously some things that you can and cannot do in a reconciliation bill. Um, and because the executive branch is, is responsible for implementing the laws that, that Congress passes, do you have any, any comments or feelings or reactions to using reconciliation to implement major policy changes like the ones that we're contemplating now and the ones that have been contemplated in the past through reconciliation? I, I pretty much echo Bill's general sentiment, which is to say that uh, when it comes to spending money, you probably don't need a parliamentary advantage, uh, certainly not when it comes to cutting taxes. I mean, cutting taxes is a little bit like handing out candy in a schoolyard. You know, you, 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 uh, you, it's easy enough to do that without help. Uh, and, uh, you know, so the use of reconciliation uh, to make the budget worse, I think, is uh, uh, troublesome to, to many folks. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the ability to make something easier to do in our hyperpartisan environment, where uh, you, you know, allegedly you can say if you're a Senate majority with less than 60 seats, uh, the other side is going to do everything they can to make you fail. So you can't get votes to do even things that are essential for the republic. You know that's that's a negative thing. If we look at reconciliation in the spirit in which it was considered, uh, you know, back in the 1970s, I wonder, Bill. I I wonder if the 1970 Act was worded the way it was in a presumption 
that there would always be deficits and therefore they didn't have to say anything explicit mm -hmm. about these. I, I, I wasn't there. Um, you know, well, I was there, but not, not in the room. Uh, I, I am, I am concerned. Yeah. Unfortunately I was there. Um, I am concerned uh, about uh, going in that direction. On the other hand, if you tell me we're using reconciliation to solve the budget problem and to do that we've got to do some complicated things like restructuring our healthcare system if we've got a good way to do it and we can manage to make some of those painful uh, choices including raising taxes without a supermajority in the senate i think that's that's what it was created for and it, you know really the only the only area where i would take issue with bill is i believe that the 1998 budget was balanced in 1993 with the reconciliation okay. bill that was passed then but we can we can use our comparative charts to try to demonstrate who's right on that one <laughs> yeah well, let me uh, interject uh, another aspect of reconciliation which is because it's an exception to the rule there are a lot of limitations and so you can get some pretty strange results that uh, that trouble me about what might happen this year for example you know, in an attempt to, to stick within the rules, you can have things that sunset, uh, programs that start and then suddenly stop, or revenue increases that might be presumed to come in later in the 10-year budget window because you, you, one of the rules is you can't have a, a deficit effect beyond 10 years. And so we've, we've seen examples like that. And I worry this year that you could act, uh, you know, a big agenda that would have some things that expire, like the child tax credit that has a big cost in the, in the out years. Or you could have things that are intended to be pay-fors that, that, that may never happen. If you have tax increases that would scale up, uh, you know, we've had, we've had examples like in the uh, Affordable Care Act where something, the so-called Cadillac tax was supposed to pay for a lot of it and uh, Congress never let it go into effect and then subsequently uh, repealed it. So, I, you know, I, I worry about those aspects of reconciliation. Any, any comments about what you see developing on that front? Just one, just one uh, tweak, uh, Bob, to your comments. Uh, remember, the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, was not done under reconciliation. Uh, there was a reconciliation bill that tweaked it, but the actual law itself did not was not done. In fact, uh, I have a letter here that I carry around with me. Uh, dear colleagues, I oppose voting for budget resolutions, budget reconciliation process to pass health care reform and climate change legislation. Such a proposal would violate the intent and spirit of the budget process and do serious injury to the constitutional rule of the United States Senate. And guess who signed that in April the 2nd, 2009, but none other than Robert C. Byrd. Uh, the point is that a budget reconciliation bill is supposed to be budget related. In fact, we saw last week uh, the ruling of the parliamentarian as it related to inclusion of a number of immigration reform issues in the uh, current uh, reconciliation bill as violating the, what Senator Byrd wanted by saying that the, those policy changes far outweigh the budgetary impact score to it and it's therefore is not appropriate in reconciliation. We have to keep coming back to the fact that the purpose of reconciliation is budget. 
I'm not opposed to immigration reform. I'm not opposed to climate change. I'm not opposed to any of that, except those kinds of things should be done through regular order, not an expedited procedure such as reconciliation. I don't know if I answered your question. No, but I like your answer. I think that, <laughs> I mean, basically it's, it is a, uh, it's a funny way the, the repercussions of doing business this way because of your you're trying to shape the legislation to fit a particular budget rule but with that uh yeah. we're going to take Bill, our second me, break uh, here. Bob, Bob let me let me just make one observation you know there make is it really quick yeah there is something in this society about trying to find a way to beat the system by making the numbers work and it goes beyond reconciliation you know we we do that in all aspects of our lives all right. Well, uh, with that, let's take our, our second break. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Bill Hoagland of the Bipartisan Policy Center and Joe Minerick of the Committee for Economic Development. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Bill Hoagland of the Bipartisan Policy Center and Joe Minerick of the Committee for Economic Development about government shutdowns, the debt limit, uh, President Biden's agenda. Uh, in this segment, we're going to focus on the debt limit. Um, this week, uh, the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, put out a, a letter to, to Congress um, estimating that the uh, if the if Congress hasn't raised or suspended the debt limit by October 18th, uh, it uh, it could be that the Treasury Department would not be uh, able to meet its obligations. She wrote specifically, it is uncertain whether we could continue to meet all the nation's commitments after that date. Uh, that date's pretty close to what uh, uh, Bill, you folks at the Bipartisan Policy Center were we're warning us about the so-called X date. And, and let's just think about what that is. I mean, we're talking about government shutdowns before. This isn't a, a, a different thing. Uh, this would be a, a the government unable to pay its bills. Um, so let's talk about exactly what, what would happen theoretically if we got over that, that X date and Janet Yellen couldn't pay the bills. I'm glad you said theoretically, because this has never happened in the history of the United States government. We have never defaulted on our bills. Uh, so let's hope that uh, that continues to be the case. And I remain optimistic that we will not default. So this is all theoretical and hypothetical. But technically, uh, if uh, we uh, were uh, if we hit this date of uh, whether it's the BP say, says the earliest could be the 15th, if Secretary Yellen says the 18th. Uh, that, that day on the 18th, we were to make uh, $2 billion in federal salary payments, could not go out. $2 billion in Medicare could not go out. Uh, two days later, $20 billion in Social Security benefits wouldn't be paid. Uh, $6 billion in tax returns that Joe's expecting would not be, he was, he'd have to wait further. Three billion in Medicaid and defense payments could not be made, and by the end of the week, another five billion in insurance payments for the Affordable Care Act. Uh, it, basically, we can't pay our bills. And now there are some who will argue that, uh, well, let's prioritize them. And 
We'll just simply wait until the cash comes in and then we'll pay them. But uh, let's pray to God. We don't even get to this point, but this, this, is, uh, this is just as you, I, you said, Bob, this is hypothetical. So under normal circumstances, we'd have, you know, there would be bipartisan support for uh, addressing the debt limit somehow, whether it's increasing the debt limit or suspending the debt limit. Right now, we're not in, in we're not there. Um, what what reasons are Republicans giving for not providing some assistance? Why, why are we in this position? Why are we why are we pushing up against a debt limit? Why isn't there this? Oh, yeah, let's just go do the, the debt limit and get this check this off so that we don't cause some sort of economic calamity because I work for Republicans, I guess I'm supposed to answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Sam wants you. <laughs> uh, let's be clear in the past, now this, goes all, this goes all the way back to something that one of the founders of the Concord Coalition was remember, Graham Redmond Hollings. This goes back to the, the first time we uh, saw something, we used the debt limit as leverage to accomplish some sort of a change in policy. And so Graham Rudman Hollings, as I seem to recall, uh, Bob and Tori, uh, 1985, we had to increase the statutory debt limit by a grand, exceed $2 trillion, where we're talking about today, $30 trillion, but $2 trillion, we just had to increase it. And it was Senator Graham, Senator Redmond, Senator Hollings, who decided that, well, well let's use this to change the process. Historically, this has been used by Republicans and Democrats as leverage to make changes in some fundamental policies. I hate to say it, uh, they've not been successful. And quite frankly, uh, right now it has nothing to do with fiscal policy. This all has to do with politics. If we're gonna raise the debt limit, uh, Republicans, you're in the minority, uh, make, uh, make all those uh, Democrats walk the uh, plank and make them vote for it and not to, uh, Republicans. And, I, and it, this is purely politics at its worst. Uh, and again, I believe that uh, uh, much like uh, I said earlier, um, we will not default, but um, we're going to have to, uh, uh, Joe, I hate to throw the ball back to you, but I think Democrats are going to have to, because Mr. McConnell's made it very clear with the vote last night that it's going to require 51 votes of uh, Democrats to raise the statutory debt limit. Joe, uh, what uh, now? The, the yeah, the balls with the Democrats now. What uh, what do you do? What are what do the Democrats do on the debt limit? Well, the uh, the uh, dictate from uh, uh, majority from minority leader uh, McConnell is that Democrats have to go back in one way, shape, or form to the beginning of the budget resolution reconciliation process. Uh, and create a reconciliation instruction to increase the debt limit. Now, there are two ways to deal with the debt limit. There's an increase, there's an, a suspension. The markets apparently like a suspension better, but you can't do that under reconciliation. Uh, Democrats say that the time is too short and uh, Republicans say, well, if you get on it right now and move quickly, you can do it. So. Um, we are in a position, and I'll, I'll just expand a little bit on Bill's observation. Uh, essentially, this is hostage taking. It's saying, if you don't do what you need to do to increase the debt limit, uh, the United States is going to default, and it's all on you. And um, it's like taking somebody's mother hostage. We shouldn't do that. 
if I were a member of Congress, I would always vote to increase the debt limit. I would be from a safe seat, of course, but I would always, I would always vote to increase the debt limit. You're, you're talking about paying the bills for past commitments, not for future commitments, which are in no way inhibited by uh, the debt limit. I, as a former staffer, but now also as a private citizen, I am so tired of the brinkmanship, both on the funding the government every year, but especially on, on the debt limit. Do you, either of you ever see a path at some point to, I mean, we talked earlier about an automatic continuing resolution to sort of avoid the brinkmanship on funding the government. Do you ever see a scenario where like most major developed countries, we get rid of the debt limit altogether so that we don't have to deal with this kind of machinations uh, every year or every, when the debt limit becomes a Never. factor? Yeah. I, uh, Joe, I don't know where you are on this. Um, not likely, except I want to make this quick observation that earlier this year, uh, Democratic-controlled Congress, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to be partisan here, but Democratic-controlled Congress voted on a budget resolution for fiscal year 22 that had in it a debt limit number of $30.789 trillion. Congress has voted on, on record, they voted for it. Here's my proposal, Tori, not to do away with it, but to say, once you adopt a budget resolution that has the number in there, it should be automatically agreed to and sent to the president. You've already voted on it. Uh, so why are we going through this again? Uh, obviously budget resolutions are not law, they're concurrent resolutions, but you voted on it and you agreed to have a debt of 30.789. Why are we doing this again? So I, I, I say the solution is to, to automatic appoint, as you said, automatic CR, automatic debt limit increase once you adopt a budget resolution. I, I'm not telling any of you anything you don't know, but I, there are two things going on here. I think number one is if you believe that voting for a debt limit increase is potentially a painful step politically. Voting to get rid of the debt limit would be at least as painful. Now, you'd only have to do it once if you were successful, but I don't think anybody wants to do that. And the other thing is that um, there are folks who believe that the, uh, holding a debt limit vote and uh, forcing the other side to vote for it is a successful political tactic and they don't want to give up that that political tool and uh, so long as you've got enough people who see it that way and right now we've got you know we can't get 60 votes in the senate to uh for the united states to commit to pay its bills um you know there is going to be resistance and it will come from both sides of the aisle i'm sure yeah, I, I'd like to see some sort of reform. I wouldn't mind if it, the whole thing were done away with, but as you say, that would be politically infeasible. Uh, I, I, I do wonder if at some point uh, when we get through this, there might be some interest in a, a bipartisan approach to at least reforming the debt limit so that there might be some way where you you take the risk of default out of the equation. So last question to our esteemed panelists here today. Uh, there's been some conversation uh, some, you know, everybody's throwing spaghetti against the wall for ideas on how to address the debt limit. What do you think about uh, nuking the filibuster in order to pass the debt limit via a simple majority in the House and the 
in the Senate. And I assume by that, Tori, you mean a one-time nuke. Um, is this was a tactical nuke or a strategic nuke? Uh, <laughs> I think I think nu nuking nuking the filibuster in perpetuity for purposes of passing the debt limit, so that going that, forward, uh, we never ever have to get sixty votes for a debt limit in the Senate ever again. The precedent would be set, and it would be permanent. Uh, as a former Senate staffer, I will say that. Uh, let's be clear the whole reason we're going through the reconciliation process and the simple majority is to get around the filibuster uh, i Corey, i think it's an interesting proposal similar as we've done with uh, federal judges and the supreme court we've uh, did away with the 60 vote hurdle um, i see this uh, i guess from a more from an institutional perspective is i see this as a no, the nose of the camel under the tent so to speak again where we, this will lead to other uh, proposals to nuke the filibuster, so to speak, for other kinds of legislation later on. And I guess I'm still old fashioned. I still think the great deliberative body needs to retain its ability to have the filibuster. So good idea, little nervous about what it would lead to next step down the road to the elimination of the filibuster completely in the United States Senate. Joe, what do you think? Uh, I think I'm exactly with Bill in this point. I uh, Traditionalists believe that, doggone it, we ought to be able to get 60 people together to solve these kinds of issues, and we're not there, and uh, we ought to fix it. And uh, I, would, uh, I would not like to go in that direction, uh, and I hope we don't have to. You can, I, I think you can see a situation with Democrats right now, especially, you know, if you if you nuke the filibuster for debt limit, then there's going to be pressure to nuke the filibuster for voting rights. There's going to be pressure to nuke the filibuster for health care reform. There's going to be and you can see how it very rapidly snowballs. Yes, because all of those are worthy causes. Exactly. Yeah, I'll on, on that uh, note, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll that note of suspense will uh, have to end it there and pick that up again at a future broadcast. Uh, I want to thank our guests this week, Bill Hoagland and Joe Minerick, for their insights into Washington's big week. And uh, thanks as well to po uh, Policy Director Tori Gorman for joining me. And thanks to you for tuning in. This is Bob Bixby. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.